It is this morning to hear the word, to hear it read over us, to have the opportunity to to have recounted for us the the work of the Holy Spirit, to send his witnesses, to preach the gospel and see its effect in these cities one after another as there are those who are being saved. The Lord has given us the testimony of the story that he's writing in the lives of the church. And that story is continuing to be written to this day as the Holy Spirit of God is at work by means of his gospel in our midst this morning. So it's with great anticipation that we open up the word. And I hope you would keep it open this morning. At Crosspoint Coast, we want to privilege the word of God. It is our authority and it is the, the means by which we hear of our great hope and salvation. So this morning we continue to pay attention to the word in our sermon series entitled Witnesses as we consider a study in the book of Acts. And what we find this morning as we look at this chapter, we're going to walk through very quickly a little bit of the first bit of the chapter and spend most of our time in the second half. But at the beginning of the chapter, we begin the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. As he begins that journey, you see that he picks up a young man named Timothy. Now, Paul's business on this missionary journey, the second journey, he's already visited a couple of the cities that he's gone to before. His business was the strengthening of the churches in the faith, even as their numbers were daily increasing. You see that in the text, that they're strengthening the faith of the believers in the churches as God is adding to their numbers in verse 5. Now, that a note about Paul's missionary journeys, we see in this first journey that there is a time for the establishing of the church. We see that Paul is continuing that as it comes to Philippi and to Macedonia, as we'll see later on in the text. There is a time for the establishing of the church. But what we see in his second missionary journey is there is also a time for the strengthening of the church. It makes me think of our partnership with the churches in Mongolia, just texting with uh, one of the pastors there this morning that we are thankful for their partnership in the gospel. You see, God has already established by the use of missionaries, his Holy Spirit has established the church in Mongolia. It's a young church. And the God has grown it up and made it fruitful. And the gospel has borne fruit in the midst of that nation. And the church is there. And we are partners in the gospel together. But there is also, and this is really, I think, where our involvement in the church and our partnership there is in, is something like the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. It's, it's a, a journey of, of strengthening and encouraging, even as God continues to cause their numbers to increase. So may we continue, as God has established his churches, may we continue to go and plant churches. But may we also not forget that as God has planted his churches, that the church still has a responsibility to strengthen the churches and ourselves to receive strengthening as others come into our midst and encourage the church here in Brevard County. Now, what we see in this passage as it continues in verses 6 through 10 is that it is God 
Who's planting the church? I think it's the main reason why we have that section in this, what is often called the the Macedonian call. We see this fascinating interaction between these missionaries, Paul and Silas and Timothy and perhaps others who were with them. We see this interchange between the missionaries and the Holy Spirit as, as they follow his direction and call in the ministry. The point of the passage is clear. The gospel mission is the mission of God. The Holy Spirit, as they're trying to go into Asia, redirects the mission because the Holy Spirit has a mission. It's a church planting mission. He has intention and purposes for these missionaries, and he ends up calling them into Macedonia. This Macedonian call is what gets Paul to cross the Aegean Sea even deeper into Greek and Roman cultural territory as they're moving further into the cultural center and further into danger. Rather than moving further into Asia, they're moving toward the power center of the day. These missionaries, they're going as witnesses, yes, Witnesses to God's gospel. So he is the one, by means of his spirit, his church, who is planting his church. And so we should not be surprised to find in these verses that he is leading and directing their steps. Do you believe that the Lord would do that still for us? That the Lord is still planting his church. It's still his gospel. It's still his work. It's still his power. It's still his salvation. It's still his kingdom. And it's still, therefore, his mission. He will lead and direct and guide his church as we pay attention to his word and as we seek his purposes in our midst and apply the wisdom that he would grant to us. As we continue, we see something that I find to be fascinating in verses 11 through 15. We see the beginning of the establishment of a church plant core team. Arriving in Philippi, we have the historically fascinating account of the conversion of a woman named Lydia. You know, this is particularly relevant to me because I remember showing up in this county and knowing exactly no one Nobody. My family didn't even live here yet. We were introduced to a couple people that we had the emails of. And out of those few connections, we began to develop relationships. And a church plant core team of six households grew up in Brevard County. And I'm watching this and I'm like, there are a lot of things that are not similar about the church plant core team in Philippi as to Brevard County. But there are some things that are remarkably similar in these as well. This woman, Lydia, she knew something about God. She was a a woman of wealth. She's a trader in purple goods. It says she seemed to have quite the means. She was a worshiper of God, the passage tells us. And she was gathering in the place of prayer, the passage tells us. And and Paul and Silas are going to that place of prayer themselves to make known the gospel. And yet, she did not yet know the gospel of the Messiah, that the Messiah had come. Jesus Christ had come, and he had not only revealed salvation, he had performed salvation. 
in his personal righteousness and his sacrificial death and in the glory and victory of his resurrection. And now these apostles are going out with that good news among the nations and the cities. And now it comes to Lydia. It's through this encounter with a wealthy, though humbly faithful woman, and then a subsequent encounter with a miraculous healing of a slave girl who was caught in divination and fortune-telling. And finally, through the conversion of who must have been a hard and strong man, the, the Philippian jailer, and the conversion of his household. It's in those three encounters that God has established the core team of his church in Philippi. This church that would become the source of great encouragement and joy for the Apostle Paul, as we see in the letter to the Philippians. The core team of this church, a rich woman, a slave girl, and a hardened soldier, a group of people who have nothing in common except partnership in the gospel. And then I think about what bound us together in those very early days seven years ago in this church planting endeavor here at Cross Point Coast. And I look at who we were and who we are, and I just see the gospel written all over it. And I saw how people began to be added to our number. And there's no reason we should be fellowshipping in one another's homes, except the Lord has made us partners in the gospel. And that word and that story has continued in our midst ever since that day as God has added to our numbers, not good buddies, people that should be hanging on the weekends, right? People with, with similar affiliations and interests. No. Partners in the gospel sharing in the same salvation is what we are. As the passage continues looking at verses 16 all the way through Verse 24, we see the, the gospel and preaching beginning to confront the culture. And there becomes a friction. So far, the story is just a story of, of great growth and personal spirituality, right? But then the preaching of the gospel taking place in the public square begins to confront the norms of the people. We see a slave girl. A slave girl who's in the throes of the occult and divination and fortune-telling, and she's being used by her masters, it says, for their financial gain. Their problem with her and what happens is that their hope of gain was gone. Was there any interest in who this girl was or what she was doing or what her experience was these days? as she has been being madly controlled to follow these missionaries around the town and cry these things out. No, there's no concern for her in the passage on the part of the masters. She's being used by her masters for financial gain. They have no care for her spiritual wealth. And God works this miracle in this passage of setting her free to remove a hindrance to the proclamation of the gospel. Now look at verses 19 and 20. You're going to see an accusation that is made on the part of her slave masters. And when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, 
They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. And listen, they are disturbing our city. You saw what the problem that they really had was, right? Their hope of gain was gone. And the accusation is they're disturbing our city. And it seems like the magistrates find some legitimacy to their claim. But in reality, these men, these missionaries, had done the best thing that could have happened for that town. One demon down, how many more to go? Right? Where's the concern for the young girl? Where's the concern for her spiritual well-being or for the spiritual well-being of the people in the city with these occultic practices in their midst? No, their concern for the city was really just a collective concern for their own personal gain. The Apostle Paul and Silas, they were doing nothing destructive to the city, but they had interrupted the selfish gain of the people. But isn't that how it works? Think about the way that the proclamation of the gospel in the public square causes impact in the lives of the shared cultural selfishness that is in our midst. The church is permitted to talk of religious things like Paul and his companions. They'd been doing that for days without really any hindrance on the part of anyone in the town bringing complaint to the magistrates. They'd been doing that for days. But the second you suggest that the religious things have implications for freedom, and a change in the daily lives of the people. Then we receive pushback. It's okay to say lots of things, but the moment those realities, the spiritual reality of who we are and who our God is, begins to make claims upon our lives and interrupt the flow of our own gain, then the pushback comes. And we see that Paul and Silas find far more than pushback. They find beating and imprisonment. So my question is, what do missionaries do? What ought we do as we proclaim the truth of the gospel to our hearts, our households, our neighborhoods, our congregation? What do we do when we receive this pushback? What do missionaries do in distress? Well, I think distress is a a light term for where we find the Apostle Paul and Silas. We find that they are in the inner part of the prison. We find that their feet are fastened in the stocks. And verse 25 comes along. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying They're praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. We come to the meat of the passage this morning. We find missionaries doing what missionaries do, whether they're in distress or they're free to wander about the city. They're praying, singing hymns to God and making known the gospel. Friends, this is not just a theoretical reminder for me. And something tells me 
If you'll listen to what they are doing in their distress, it will challenge you, not just just a theoretical concept, but as a personal reminder for you. Even recently, I've had many things to be anxious about. Even as recent as Friday, as I'm trying my best to finish up taxes, my guess is I'm not the only one. There's a bit to be anxious about these days. And if you would have visited my house on Friday, and some of my family is here, they did visit my house on Friday with TurboTax open on my computer, you would not have found me praying and singing hymns to God. Can we just repent for a couple seconds here? Anybody else have something they'd like to share? Right? But now that I'm confronted with this text, I ask myself, and I have, what would that have been like? What if I had opened up and remembered not what I feel like is being taken away from me, which is mostly time because I know I owe money, but what if I would have remembered what I have and have forever and eternity that has been provided for me in Christ? So much so that it would rise up in prayer and song, and a testimony in my household as I do taxes, do you see? But if I would have done that, it would have robbed me of my opportunity for my right to complain. It would have interrupted the course of my normal life if I would have seen what I have in Christ on that day. Listen to the words of Paul to the Philippians many years later. These are words They have literally seen him and the other missionaries apply in the midst of their distress. Philippians 4, 4 through 7, written to this people. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I was like, why did you put the parentheses? Like that time, you know, when we were in prison and we prayed and sang songs to God and the prisoners listened. Like, you know, that time. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And I'm thinking, is there anything at all reasonable about singing hymns in a prison? Or while doing taxes or whatever other distress we have in our life. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, I read that scripture in the context of Acts chapter 16, and every word all of a sudden makes sense. Every word jumps off the page, and I say, I think that might actually be reasonable. I think that might actually be true. How beautiful and profound it is to worship God. What a rescue from short-sightedness to pray and sing songs to God is the only true and reasonable response available to us in our distress. This is the second time we've seen a prison rescue in Acts. In Acts chapter 12, we see Peter brought stealthily out 
by an angel at night. We note in that episode in Acts chapter 12 that the guards ended up being killed by the ruler when it was discovered that they had escaped prison. This brings a certain reasonableness also to the Philippian jailer when he pulls out his sword. He's about to end his own life when he discovers that the prison doors were broken open. And then we see an amazing, an amazing scene. Be shocked. Look at the text and let your eyes be convinced this is what actually happened. Acts 16, verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Baal cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. The jailer falls down. So recently, having fastened Paul and Silas's feet in the stocks, now he is down on his face at those feet, trembling with fear. What an even more amazing reality in this passage is the jailer's question. You see it, right? His question, sirs, verse 30, sirs, what must I do? To be saved, says the jailer. Profound. Amazing. Certainly something that has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit of God himself. It's clear by the jailer's question that these missionaries had continued to proclaim the gospel even among their captors. What is the business of missionaries in their distress? Friends, you know that missionaries is just a code word for disciples, and disciples is just a code word for Christians. Christians is just a code word for the people of God. What do the people of God do in their distress? They pray. They sing. And they proclaim the gospel with clarity. And God works a miracle. I find the most amazing miracle in the whole of this section about this jailer is that he asks, how can I be saved? The captor seeks salvation. It's in their chains that the gospel rang so true to their neighbors at the moment. Friends, I have to repent of my fretting in my home while doing my taxes. I did not only have a bad attitude. Sorry, guys, for my attitude, I could say. I can also say, sorry, family, for not preaching the gospel well among you. I told you in my fretting and anxiety that there is something greater to behold than what we already have. You see, consider first, Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. It's written to a young man who had accompanied Paul on this journey. He was in this town when this took place. In 2 Timothy 1, 8, Many years later, near the end of the Apostle Paul's own ministry, he writes this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Don't be ashamed or even surprised by suffering, but rather share in whatever may come 
for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel. But I am not ashamed, he says, for I know whom I have believed. Suffering for the sake of the gospel, let alone suffering for the sake of simply trials and anxieties in the course of life, is sure to come. It will come. And some of you are like, yes, I know it has come. And we have no reason to fret or be ashamed, not even ashamed of our failure to bear under our suffering well. Friends, the greatest suffering that I have in my life is not what happens to me, but the sin that I exhibit in my unbelief when it happens. Friends, that is the greatest suffering in my life. But I need not be afraid of even my own failure, for I have a Redeemer I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. If we'll only stop in the midst of our anxiety and remember what missionaries do in distress, what missionaries do in distress is they are compelled by the word of their proclamation that they have a Christ. They have a Messiah. They have Jesus I'm reminded of good friends and partners in the gospel, the staff at a children's home in Asia who recently threatened with being shut down for the reading of the Bible to children. We asked, what is your prayer request? And their prayer was this. Their prayer was for the heart of the woman who threatened them that she would come to believe the gospel because of their witness. It sounds like a song and a hymn and continued proclamation by partners in the gospel, doesn't it? What do missionaries do in their distress? They pray, they sing, and they continue to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it sure looks like when you read Philippians, it looks like joy is the result. And so let us consider for a few moments the remainder of our passage, verses 31 through 34, this section, the the outworking of grace and faith in the life of this church. The response that the Apostle Paul makes to the Philippian jailer, to his question, what must I do to be saved? They said in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Salvation is from God alone And the message that is proclaimed to them is it is to be received by faith alone. This was the whole theme of last week's passage in Acts chapter 15. The whole point of the Jerusalem council. Grace alone through faith alone. Nothing that follows even in this passage adds to the reality of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. The jailer heard the gospel from Paul and and Silas while they were in prison. He heard that he was a sinner, that God is just to judge him for his sin and rebellion. Therefore, he must repent. They heard that Jesus, who is both God and the only righteous man, had died in his place, taking the judgment of God for him so that he may be forgiven. Therefore, he must Believe. 
It's not enough that we preach the gospel. And we know this is the gospel that they preached because they preached it over and over in the record as they go from city to city and town from town, region to region. But it's not enough that they preached that gospel. They also called the lost to faith in God. Believe in the Lord Jesus, they said, and you will be saved. I hope at Cross Point Coast this morning you hear not only the preaching of the gospel about this Savior, about this Redeemer, but also the call to believe, to be forgiven, and to be saved. You see in this passage three things, three things that are so important for the life of the one who has been saved by grace through faith. You see in verse 32, that they listened to the word. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They listened to the word. The person who has believed in the gospel and has been saved by grace alone through faith alone now has a new appreciation and desire for the word of God. Friends, we've had almost a chapter and a half of the word read for us between Mark Schladorn this, this morning and Matt Reimer reading the text for us. But we want to hear the word, do we not? We have a newfound appreciation. Share with us the word. And then after reading the word, would you explain to us and help us just to spend time to slow down, to pay attention to what is there? We have this appreciation for the word of God, for it is by that word that we have had the word of salvation declared over us, at work in us, and transforming us to this day. We listen to the word. Verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. This is a fascinating statement. There is a a contradiction almost in the passage. He, the jailer, took them, the missionaries, the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And they baptized It's beautiful. It's beautiful. The person who has believed in the gospel and been saved by grace alone through faith alone now has a new appreciation for what God has done in washing his wounds. Even as the jailer washes the missionaries' wounds, we see the missionaries baptizing them and all the others in this new household of faith. This baptism is three things. It is a marker that they have been washed. This household has been washed and made alive by the grace of God. Baptism is a proclamation not about the person being baptized, but about the grace of God sufficient to cleanse. It is a public testimony of faith in Jesus is a declaration that this person belongs to that Savior. And finally, it's a witness that they have now identified with and belong to the church. The second the Philippian jailer is baptized, he says, if you throw the church in the stocks, here we go. You're going to have to find another jailer, friends. I'll be in there with them. It's a powerful statement that takes place there. And we have the opportunity to witness that and participate in it even next week. Next week is Easter Sunday. And every Easter Sunday, 
We make an appeal to the congregation that if you would like to be baptized, if you have repented and believed, if the Lord has washed you, would you, would you join us in this proclamation of the grace of God that has been received by faith that you are now a part of Christ's church? If that's you and you would like to be baptized, will you please talk to me? would love to talk to you during the course of this week and, and share in that conversation together. And Lord willing that you would come and be baptized next week just after the service. We will have an area that is set up for us to participate in that so the church can join in that celebration together. This is a household that has a newfound appreciation for the word, has a new profound appreciation for what it is to be washed and a newfound appreciation for hospitality and fellowship together. Look at verse 34. In verse 34, it says, Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Don't miss how utterly miraculous this meal table is. Just the evening before this late-night meal, the jailer was putting these men in the darkest innermost part of the prison. They were his enemies. They were his prisoners. They were nothing more than filthy criminals. And now they're brothers and sisters together, washing one another's wounds, proclaiming forgiveness of sin and enjoying bountiful fruit of the same salvation. Friends, that is a miracle. That's never happened in Philippi before. Friends, this is our community groups. In many ways, the meals that we share together are a memorial of this meal. To remember what it is to share around the jailer's table on a late night of rescue and salvation. But our meals together with the meal in the Philippian jailer's household are a reminder that we have been invited to dine at a table in the kingdom of our God forever. And the people who are gathered there are of God's own choosing. And he has chosen people like a rich woman, a seller of purple goods, a worshiper of God, He's chosen a young slave girl. He's chosen a Philippian jailer along with those in his household. By his grace, he has chosen the people of Cross Point Coast, and we share together around one meal table as we represent it together when we fellowship like they did on that day. When we see, by the time Paul writes the letter of Philippians, we see that they had truly become partners in the gospel. One of my favorite passages in the scriptures, Philippians 1, 3 through 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, he says, of the Philippians, always in every pair of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day. Which day? This day until now. It's beautiful, miraculous. We just wrap up the passage. There's a couple things that happen very quickly at the end. Verses 35 through 40 have these rapid series of events. We have the magistrates that realize that maybe they shouldn't have beaten them and thrown them in prison quite so quickly. 
Let these men go. They come with in verse 35 and verse 36. The jailer says, go in peace. Aren't you relieved? You get to go now. Paul and Silas, they say no. (laughs) Actually, we're Roman citizens. Let them come themselves, they say, and take us out. (laughs) We'd like to see them for a little while. Note that they found nothing wrong with claiming their rights according to the law. I think that's instructive for us. The scriptures say some beautiful things about submission to those who are in authority over you. But if the authorities over you have laid down certain laws, there is nothing wrong with reminding them of what those laws are right. And they do. You remind them of those laws In verses 38 and 39, the magistrates come. It says that they're afraid and apologized. They situated themselves underneath of the law. Perhaps, I wonder, if part of the idea of Paul and Silas here is that the next time missionaries arrive in the town, perhaps they will find a little more hospitality. And then in verse 30, it says simply they went out from the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. They went out, they made their point, but they didn't make trouble. After leaving the prison, they simply visited Lydia and the church that's already growing up with her household as a beachhead for ministry. What if our households, as God brings salvation to our households, what if they became beachheads for ministry? What if when we thought of the church plant that is Cross Point Coast, we did not think of a school cafeteria people or a little office suite in Rockledge? What if we thought of our households as beachheads for mission? So when missionaries would visit, they don't say, where does Cross Point Coast meet? And I can say, I can tell you exactly where they are. We would be encouraged in ministry. Their focus was not to make a point of their rights. Their focus was not self-righteousness or vindictive spitefulness. Their focus, as they left that prison, was still dogged in their task of encouragement and the strengthening of the church. Friends, what this passage is all about is it's God is planting his church. He's planting his gospel and he's growing up his church. He's fashioning his core team, not through a grand strategy of the missionaries, but through the simple and miraculous salvation of those who are coming to believe. More and more, we are being brought into these faithful practices that we find of the church. More and more, we are seeing this prayer and worship. We're seeing an attention to the word arising in Acts, and I pray in us. We're seeing baptism and other public witness to our salvation. And friends, what we see is the beautiful fruit of fellowship together, not on the basis of shared interests. May our community groups, may any of our gatherings not not be simply on the basis of our shared interests. May the people in our Community, not be able to look at Cross Point Coast and say, look, yeah, that people, of course they hang out together. They say that, that people have a shared salvation. Let us this morning continue the story of the church of Philippi. That is what we are. We are a continuing of the story of Christ's church. 
First, let those among us who have not yet believed hear the gospel of forgiveness and the grace of Jesus. And this morning, I want to call you to repent and believe. It's time to put off pretending like you belong. To repent of of unbelief and confess that Jesus has forgiven you. Today is that day. And to join in fellowship together and put that grace on display in baptism even next week. Finally, let us remember the joy of our salvation at all times. Let us be renewed in our faith, spurred on in our prayer, encouraged in our song as we continue together to witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, it seems so clear right now. It seems so clear what we have in you. And it won't take even five minutes from the ending of this message, whether it be trying to wrangle a kid that's next to us to just be still a little longer, or whether it be a concern that immediately comes to into our minds about a friend or a roommate or a, a parent or a sibling or a child that will distract us and, and cause us to believe that there is something that we have to fret about. Some cause to be fearful in our gospel proclamation. Lord, I pray that you would go with us, that your Holy Spirit would continue to plant your church in our hearts, that your gospel would be founded there more deeply, that we would remember that these realities and troubles and sufferings are real. Paul and Silas had backs that need cleaned because their skin had been broken open. But they still have a song. And it's the song that needs to be heard in the midst of the suffering. Lord, I pray that you would remind us, that you would go with us, that your word would continue to confront our daily lives. Do not let this be a vain religious practice, but change us, interrupt what we would consider to be gain. Thank you, Lord. We trust you to do these things as you have already done, that what we see in our midst would be nothing less than miracle. We pray this in the name of our Savior, our Redeemer, the miracle worker Jesus. Amen.